Welcome to Export Stories, a podcast featuring first-person insights from the wide and sometimes crazy world of U.S. exporting. Your host for Export Stories is Betsy Olam, president of Olam International, a U.S.-based export management company. Betsy has made a 37-year career of developing global sales and distribution for U.S. companies. Like you, she loves great stories. You don't have to be an exporter to enjoy the stories we're going to share with you each month. We're so glad you've joined us. Now, here is Betsy to introduce today's podcast. Hello, bonjour, hola, konnichiwa, ni hao, machaben, and shalom. Welcome to Export Stories. I'm your host, Betsy Olam. Thank you for joining us and listening today. I'm very excited to have as our guest today, Ed King, co-owner and vice president of Gray Pet International. He joins us from their headquarters in Malvern, Arkansas. Hi, Ed. Welcome to the podcast. Well, good morning, Betsy. Uh, thank you very much for the invitation to join in your podcast. I've listened to a couple of your podcasts, and it's always entertaining to hear other exporters and some of their, their uh, stories and things that have how they've gotten where they've gotten and some of their, their uh, adventures outside the U.S. Oh, I, well, that is the idea. We're, we're trying to build a little movement here, a community of exporters sharing stories. So, And you've got some good ones, so I'm really glad you're here. Uh, you know, what I want to say is, to me, Gray Pet is a, a true story of Americana, you know, his American history is a fascinating history. And I was wondering if you'd mind telling our listeners a little bit about your company's story. I absolutely would love to tell that story because it is a fascinating story. It is certainly not, I mean, it's Americana, but it's near and dear to many Arkansans because it did start in Camden, Arkansas Mm -hmm. uh, in the late 1930s and uh, really got going in the, the 1940s and 50s. But uh, there are some, some some brands in Arkansas that stand out historically and just uh, kind of a, a place in everybody's heart, and mm-hmm. Great Bed is one of those. Uh, but uh, in 1939, a young man named B.T. Folks uh, was running a gas station <laughs> in Camden, Arkansas, and thought it'd be a good idea to add some soft drinks to, to add to his sales of gasoline and found out that soft drinks made him more money than selling gasoline. <laughs> I had to expand it on that. And uh, he bought a couple little bottling plants in, in South Arkansas, and they did pretty well, and it got busier and busier. But uh, unfortunately, along came the Depression and changed everything, so he had to close a couple of his bottling plants and hit the road and started selling uh, soft drinks out of the back of his car. And that seemed to do pretty well, and he realized that grape soft drinks were the biggest seller for him. That was the most popular thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, he decided he was going to jump into the business uh, completely, and he traveled to uh, Chicago because uh, he heard of a name called Grapeette and bought it from a liquor company in Chicago and brought Grapeette name into Arkansas. Mm-hmm. Just continued to grow, uh, signing up distributors all around the country, um, and it became a very popular. It was the most popular fruit-flavored soft drink in America in its heyday. Wow. During World War II, sugar was rationed, which puts kind of a crimp on soft drinks. Mm -hmm. Uh, They managed to to get by by substituting 
a, a sugar called dextrose, which wasn't rationed. <laughs> and some of the more expensive, more collectible bottles uh, from that period are printed on there made with dextrose. And that's something that some of the collectors really value. Uh, they also started making syrups, which weren't uh, taxed, uh, like soft drinks. And mm. they had a little syrup bottle with clowns and elephants and cats. Ah. But uh, move forward a little bit. Uh, Wait, when you add, when you say syrup, do you mean syrup like you put on pancakes or syrup to flavor water or something? What kind of syrup? Well, a lot of people, that was kind of the idea that uh, you could add the syrup to water and you'd have a, a drink. But uh -huh. from what I've heard from talking to other people, uh, it's mainly for like ice cream. Ah, for making my mouth water. Okay. <laughs> I've, uh, I've, I've actually had uh, grape pet syrup on ice cream and it's, it's really good. That sounds really good. Okay, all right. Sorry to interrupt. Keep going. Well, I'm gonna probably gonna have to be like in a movie, do some flashbacks because some things were happening simultaneously. So I'll try to, to make it so confusing. Uh, no, no. But so also uh, during the war, a young man named uh, Paul May mm -hmm. uh, was from Arkansas, and he was working in uh, the oil fields of South America for Standard Oil. And he became uh, very involved down there and made a lot of contacts. But um, after the war, he came back to Arkansas looking for a job. And he met a young lady from Camden, Arkansas, and married her. And they moved to Camden. And uh, he went to work for Great Pet. And he told Mr. Folks, I can sell, I can really do a great job selling this product outside the U.S. and Central and South America. And that's how Great Pet International got started. Wow. He, uh, he built several brands or, or distributors in, in Central and South America. In fact, to this day, our oldest distributor, uh, franchise distributor, is in Guatemala City. And he signed that agreement in 1946. Wow. That's, that's impressive to have a distributor that long. That's cool. It really is. Uh, but... Uh, as, as things happened, uh, Mr. Folks got older. Uh, in the U.S., the company kind of uh, slowed down a bit, but he had the opportunity to sell Grapevet to a larger company. Mergers were happening, acquisitions were taking place, mm -hmm. and he sold to a uh, liquor distributorship uh, in New York, and then they sold in turn to Pepsi, which should have been really good for Grapevet, except... Uh, the Federal Trade Commission said, no, we're not going to allow this because Pepsi has too many brands. Uh, so it ended up in the hands of a, a company in Atlanta who also owned New Grape and owned a lot of regional brands like Dad's Root Beer and Frosty Root Beer and Bubble Up. That was kind of their niche in the market. Mm -hmm. So in the 1970s, they came to Camden, uh, shut the plant down, and started changing all the grape pet distributors to new grape distributors. And that was kind of the beginning of the end at the time yeah. of the grape brand in the U.S. Oh, that must have been a sad, sad time for those people in Arkansas that were associated with Grape Pit. That must have... Yeah, yeah, I'm sure it was. I've, heard, I've talked to uh, different people who, were, who worked for the company during that period, mm -hmm. and uh, they said they, you know, it was a very sad day, especially in Camden, because it was just such a special thing to the people of Camden. Right, right. The, uh, the good news, I guess, <laughs> for us, 
uh, is that the international division was always a separate company. And so oh. Mr. May uh, kept that separate, decided he can continue what uh, Mr. Folks had allowed him. And this is kind of a, a neat story, is that uh, Mr. May was in Brazil at the time uh, developing uh, and just signed the largest distributorship he had ever signed. And the flying got back to Mexico City where he was working on uh, another deal. And Mr. Folks called him and said, uh, I just sold off all the rights to Brazil and Mexico, so come on home. Ah. And uh, that, uh, but before that, but for doing that, he said, oh, what I'm going to do for you is you have international rights. I, you know, I'm going to give you all the international rights anywhere in the U.S. or any in, outside the U.S. you can sell to. It's, it, it's yours. So that was kind of the trade-off. Yeah. So that's how Great Britain International remained separate and private and stayed in the May, stayed still in the May family. And that's how Great Britain International uh, kept going, even though the U.S. domestic brand kind of died off. Right. Uh, it was off from 1971 until uh, about 20 years ago when uh, we what we have today. Okay. Uh, so that, uh, that kind of got us up to... to uh, at a, you know, the 70s, Grape International was purely export company. In fact, it was called the Grape Bed Export Company at the time. Oh, okay. So that was uh, how we started uh, getting, how we stayed, and how Grape Bed stayed somewhat relevant uh, as far as keeping the formulas alive and keeping the company alive was purely exporting and uh, selling throughout Central and South America and Southeast Asia. Uh, Mr. May had done an amazing job. I've, seen letters in the files that he traveled back in the, the 60s on a, a DC-3 and would take him three or four days to get anywhere he was going because of uh, but, uh, some fascinating stories of his travels to anywhere from Iran and Pakistan to Africa, all over <laughs> Europe. He was quite the explorer. I, I think his, uh, his main motivation was traveling more than uh, making money, but he did a pretty good job at that too. Oh, well. So now, he would what... have much better stories than I do, I'm sure. Oh, I, I'm sure. I, I know you have some great stories too. But uh, was he selling uh, the flavoring? What what exactly was he selling? The soda itself, the bottling or bottled soda? Or he was, he was selling flavor concentrates. Okay. To bottlers. I see. So what uh, what uh, had been done with the uh, with the technical department at Great Bet is to continue to just make a more and more and more concentrated flavoring to save in, in shipping costs. Right. So uh, it took nearly out all the water that they could take out and made a highly concentrated flavoring. Mm -hmm. and that would go to the bottling plant. The bottling plant uh, adds sweetener, which in that case in, internationally was nearly exclusively uh, sugar, cane sugar. Yeah. And they obviously add carbonated water and then they do their own uh, bottling. Mm-hmm. Uh, at the plant, so that was that was kind of his niche, is like these highly concentrated flavors that saved a lot of money on ocean freight. Sure, sure. So uh, things kind of just kind of rolled along in the uh, late seventies, uh, and uh, but still totally exporting. Mm -hmm. uh, that period, uh, Mr. May's son-in-law, Brooks Rice. Uh, who had been working in California. He's from Arkansas as well, from Fordyce, Arkansas, but he'd gone to Harvard Business School and ended up in California. He said one day he was sitting in traffic in L.A. and said, I've got to get back to Arkansas. <laughs> and, 
So he and uh, his Mr. May, uh, I guess, had some conversations and had this grand idea that uh, Mr. Rice was going to come back to Arkansas. They were going to uh, expand Grape Ed again and uh, get into the bottled water business because they, yeah. being in California, he saw that as a burgeoning industry and that sure. bottled water would be, a, you know, a big thing. To and there's lots of uh, good spring water, right? And in Hot Springs area. Exactly. We have that in Memphis, too. It's We're very fortunate. Right. right. So uh, he moved back from California, and they started uh, uh, doing the Great Pet franchise uh, international again. Uh, but as markets changed, uh, bottled water became a more important uh, item in the U.S. He was right about the fact that bottled water was very much... Uh, the future, mm-hmm. and uh, he spent more time with the uh, bottled water side than the soft drink side. And so there again, you know, the international business kind of slowed down, and mm-hmm. people weren't traveling as much, and they cut their sales force. So he, he kind of went over to that. But they kept Great Pet around and just kind of taking care of certain customers and kind of uh, shared the facility with the bottled water company. Mm-hmm. Uh, so... Um, he met this guy named Sam Walton. I guess you've heard of him. I've heard of him. A few people have heard the name. <laughs> yeah. uh, Walmart at the time was uh, beginning to get into the private label or store brand products. Mm-hmm. And uh, they were selling them some bottled water. And he happened to meet Sam Walton in the hall and started swapping stories. And uh, when he said Great Bet, Mr. Walton said, I want, well, I want grape bed in my stores. I love grape. That was my favorite soft drink growing uh, up. And then, by the way, we're starting this private label program. I would love to have grape bed flavors uh, in Walmart stores and the store brand. And uh, Mr. Ross, well, you know, I don't have the trademark grape bed in the U.S., but I can give you, I can get you the flavors in there. So they started Sam's Choice Grape and a Sam's Choice Orange. Uh, uh, just just uh, kind of. The fruit flavor name, not with the brand name. Right, right. So, uh, about that same time, uh, Mr. Rice had the opportunity to sell his bottled water company to Mountain Valley, and Mountain Valley hired him as a CEO. Right. So, at uh, he said, "No, now what am I going to do about the Walmart thing?" <laughs> and so his son, uh, Paul Rice, who's the president of the company now, uh, moved back from Dallas, where he's working in the financial industry. Uh-huh. And I'd known Paul for a while because I'd worked in the financial industry in Arkansas. Uh-huh. And Mr. Rice called and said, we're starting this Walmart thing. Would you like to come to Hot Springs and help set up a new company and do the financials and the accounting? And I said, you know, that sounds like a, an opportunity. Sure. Uh, so I, my wife and I moved to Hot Springs. And uh, the private label program lasted about six months. <laughs> and Walmart said, we're going to step back and... Uh, we don't know if we want to do this or not. Oh. Uh, Paul and I say, well, we're here now, and we've got our little company, uh, but we don't have Walmart. What are we going to do? Yeah. And what we decided to do was jump on planes and start trying to build back the international business. Right. And so here's two naive guys who'd worked in Arkansas and Texas and hadn't traveled a lot internationally and started getting on, uh, on planes and going to various far corners of the world and, and seeing if we could trying to build up the, the Great Pet brand again. Right. That's kind of what we did. Uh, we, we went back to existing customers and told them we're back in business, we're going strong, and uh, had some luck and, and, and fortune in doing that. 
it's kind of got the company back on its feet and established it again as uh, being a real player in the soft drink market. What we focused on, more rural areas, some of these countries that Coke and Pepsi weren't quite as strong in and the brand loyalty wasn't as strong uh, for those two big franchise companies. We knew we couldn't compete directly. Yeah. So we went to the areas that uh, that looked like uh, would be more favorable to uh-huh. uh, what we were doing and how we were doing it. Small independent bottlers who were looking for American brands uh, that could uh, be sold in their market. And that's kind of what uh, we focused on uh, for a few years. Uh, and here's where I kind of spring forward just a little bit, and I'll go back to the export in just a few minutes. But uh, well, can, I, can I ask one question? Uh, it, in those international markets, were they calling it Grey Pet or were they had their own local names? Well, it, it was a combination of those two things. Uh-huh. Uh, some countries, uh, we, we franchise actual Grey Pet brands and uh, allowed them to use the brand name. Mm-hmm. Uh, some countries, Grey Pet did not translate, especially in Asia, very well. Yeah. Uh, for example, in Southeast Asia, yeah. uh, it was Cheers. And we were developing not only the grape soda, but uh, we started developing regional flavors and regional taste preferences. Oh. But uh, in, some, in several of the uh, like Southeast Asia countries uh, had formerly been uh, British Crown colonies. Right. And Cheers was kind of a British toast. And so we uh, came up with the brand name Cheers. Oh. And so they Cheers instead. And we, we altered And also, we not only the grape, but we did... Like I said, regional flavors. Uh, mm-hmm. There were some punch flavors, a green punch, which wouldn't sell very well in the U.S., <laughs> but very well uh, there. And uh, interesting. So that's uh, that's kind of how we got back into the market. Was uh, trying to trying to our philosophy is always uh, you know, try to let the local market dictate them to uh, the the advertising and the marketing efforts. Right. Uh, we we found that. Uh, not that they haven't been successful, but Coke and Pepsi, like, this is how we do it in the U.S., and this is how we're going to do it everywhere, because they have a very standard formula for everything. Correct. And we just be much more flexible and let the bottler tell us, what do you want? Uh, because you know your market better than we do. I mean, two guys from Arkansas are going to go to, uh, to Singapore or Thailand or Malaysia and say, here's what we think you ought to do. Right. We know what they need to do. Right, right. Well, I mean... Th- the the one of the values of being a smaller company is the flexibility to creative that way. Uh, I can see that, uh, and and I think it's 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 uh, so valuable to hear about how a company, all the the history of how a company changed through the times, through what was happening in history, and you know became the modern company you are today. I think it's fascinating. Well, that's one thing. Uh, I occasionally do a class for the Arkansas District Export Council. Mm-hmm. Uh, they have a you know, program called Export 101. Right. And there's different segments to it, some legal and some financing, and, and then they try to have someone who's an exporter uh, that actually, uh, you know, feed on the ground exporter. Right. And uh, one thing I try to stress is you just you have to be flexible. Uh, you can't do things just like you do in the U.S. You can't direct right. your marketing efforts just like we do. Your products may have to change. Your specifications may have to change. That's right. But thing, uh, you know, there's several pieces of advice I have for people, especially starting and exporting, is that you just have to do things uh, a different way and be willing to do those things. Because if you're not, you're probably not going to be successful. 
in a given market. Right. All right. Such Im- such important lessons. Absolutely. Thank you for sharing that. I love the story and um, on your website, which I'm going to share on our podcast website, uh, you can see some of the Americana. I mean, I'm, I'm a history lover and I love like uh, the idea of the animal syrup bottles and the old ads there. I think you show some trolley car ads and you can even listen to the old jingle on there. I was just wondering, uh, I think you told me there's a small museum at the plant. Is that open to the public? It is. Yes. Yeah, it's We have a limited amount of things. It's, it's really amazing. And I guess I do not have that collector gene. Uh-huh. But uh, people that do yeah. are really they're really invested in uh, some are very invested in the Grape Ant brand. Sure, uh, I mean signs from the '30s or '40s. I mean, they just have a, a real history. I mean, there's a, a group of little small store signs that uh, were developed during World War II, and uh-huh. got people in uniform and uh, saluting the flag and holding the Grape Ant. And it really is a part of American history that uh, the type of advertising that was so patriotic and so involved in the war effort that uh, it makes it really kind of fascinating. Yeah. And it always it, it's it's amazing to me when people will drop by and they say, "Oh, I remember that style of bottle, or I remember that sign, or I remember my grandfather taking me down to uh, uh, the store and pulling the bottle out of the old ice box." Absolutely. Award for doing, you know, my, my five cent bottle of grape ant. That uh, and it was a small bottle as opposed to some of the bigger bottles. Uh-huh. It was so so fruity and flavorful, and it just gives me some memory. My dad would take me fishing. And we'd always take grape ant. Um, those those kind of stories are kind of heartwarming to me because they are uh, the history. Yeah, absolutely. I oh yeah, I think of grape soda as a kid with, uh, you know, Saturdays I had the a peanut butter and jelly sandwich and a grape soda, and that was that was like the treat of the weekend. <laughs> so yeah. Yeah. great, yeah. There's great. There are great memories with that. Um, uh, just just one last question, then I want to get into some of your stories. But um, is there is there still a relationship with Walmart? I'm just curious. So they. Or, there is. Um, as I had mentioned earlier, we did not have the Great Bet uh, trademark in the U.S. for a yeah. long time. But uh, the company in Atlanta that owned all the brands, that owned the Great Bet brand, uh, they decided to sell the company, and they were selling off the individual brands to whoever was the highest bidder. Mm-hmm. And fortunately, we were able to buy back the Great Bet trademark in the U.S. Oh, nice. And we went to Walmart. We First said, we're going to do this on our own. We're going to get Great Pet back on the market. And then we realized that's an enormous task in today's environment mm-hmm. uh, with all the brands that are on the market. And uh, wholesale distributorship among chain, store chains are a lot more expensive, paying uh, slotting allowances or fees to be in the warehouses. And so we decided we were going to go back to Walmart and, and uh, went to the buyer at the time. And I know you've got Sam's Choice Grape and Orange, uh, how would you like to have Sam's Choice Great Bet and Sam's Choice Orange Jet? Does that give mm-hmm. some cachet to your private label store brand? Sure. And they fell over that. Well, their first question was, knowing Walmart, how much is that going to cost me? <laughs> of course. And uh, we said absolutely nothing. You just uh, So we, we signed a licensing agreement that they would, uh, use our, they would use the name in return for they would be buying concentrate, flavor concentrates directly from us. Yes. And that we were uh, 
shipping our flavor concentrates to a a uh, group of bottlers that were producing the product for them. Mm-hmm. Worked out great for us. Sure. Uh, and it, you know, some people think, why did you sell, you know, but I didn't, or license the name to Walmart. It's the only place we can get it. Uh, the answer is because they have 3,500 stores. <laughs> yeah. And they have great distribution and great uh, merchandising. Uh, we have no advertising costs or shipping costs or uh, sure. we don't have to build a bottling plant. So it really worked out well for us. And it's oh, been sure. a, really a really good relationship between uh, Walmart and us. And I, I think I mentioned to you earlier in a previous conversation that uh, at the, there's a museum in Bentonville uh-huh. on the square. Uh, they have a gift shop, five and dime gift shop, which is kind of modeled after Sam Walton's first store. Oh, um, yeah, yeah. In the museum, obviously, it's a timeline of Walmart history, but uh, there's one section that has Sam Walton's office. I mean, they moved it to over from the headquarters and moved it right into the museum, encased it in glass, and just like the day Sam left. But in that same room beside the, his office, there's a, a grouping of memorabilia uh, of Sam Walton growing up. And in that grouping, there is a six-ounce bottle from the 1940s of Great Bet Soda. Oh, that is so great. Ah, oh, that's wonderful. That's yeah, wonderful. That uh, makes, when we walk in there and look at it, always kind of makes me feel good to see that. <laughs> I know it. I'm sure that's really heartwarming. Well, that's so cool. So let's, uh, let's talk about some of your stories, Ed, because obviously you've been uh, all over the globe, and we'd love to hear about, you know, some of your, those experiences. Well, uh, Paul and I uh, kind of divided up. There's only two of us at the time. Uh, we're the only two people in the company for a while. And we said, we're going to divide this company up. You're going to take, Paul's going to take Western Hemisphere, which uh, <laughs> Central and South America and the Caribbean. And I'm going to go to the other side of the world and go to uh, Southeast Asia, uh, Asia and China. Uh-huh. And fortunately, had that's a customer base in Southeast Asia. And so my first trip, I went and said, well, where are we going to go? And I said, well, I'm going, I just said, I'm going to go to Malaysia. Uh, and so, not knowing a lot about international travel, mm-hmm. uh, I went to Malaysia, and it was just, a, a, first of all, it was a uh, Chinese family that owned one of the bottling plants, mm-hmm. and it was like one of the greatest experiences of my life. These people were so welcoming and, and gracious, uh, and it was such a different, but it was a, such a culture shock, because uh, sure. I, I hadn't traveled a lot internationally, uh-huh. uh, but... Uh, we were able to start uh, developing these flavors for them. Uh, the owner of the plant had been a Coca-Cola executive who decided to go out on his own and start his own brands. And uh, just, we really hit it off, I guess. And uh, we started developing flavors for them. So, you know, the, some of the things about being flexible doesn't only apply to business practices. Right. But it's cultural practices. Uh, and you sit down at a table and see foods that you're not sure exactly what they are. <laughs> Been there. And, Been there. You know, yes. When there's a, you know, a full suckling pig set on the middle of the lazy Susan <laughs> and they sit around and you, you just dig in and smile and realistically, I mean, you know, really it was delicious. Everything we ate was delicious, but yes. it's just so different than anything that, uh, but that, that's part of the flexibility. I mean, you have exactly. to, their, their culture is very different than ours and some of the, the business practices of the relationship the social relationships are mm-hmm. very different yeah it's probably my uh 
biggest cultural uh, experiences uh, when I went to China. Uh, I just had this, I, you know, I traveled to Southeast Asia a few times, and just thought China was like, you know, that's the next big horizon to, to go to tackle. Yes. And what year China, was that? What what year was that that you first went to China? Do you remember? First trip to China was in 1982 or oh, Okay. Really, a lot of people weren't going to China yeah, at that point. Right. And so, but this is before, you know, computers and Google and search mm -hmm. engine and that kind of thing. Exactly. Uh, but uh, through some assistance with the uh, Arkansas Economic Development Commission, mm -hmm. uh, we got some uh, names of companies. In China, and I started sending faxes. I couldn't fax. <laughs> yep. And so we found a company, and we thought you know, we traded a lot of information, and it, it seemed to be a very legitimate company. They had over 3,000 employees, and they had this massive uh, infrastructure, and had a lot of correspondence back and forth. And so we decided, I decided that I'm going to go. Mm -hmm. And so I contacted uh, one of our partners in Malaysia that, that was Chinese. And said, I'll meet you, you know, in, in Beijing on a certain day. And so I go to Beijing, at, get there at midnight, and look at the, the, the line, the taxi is like, I mean, two hour wait. Ah. And this Chinese man comes up and speaks English, and said, I'll take you to your hotel for, for $50. Wow. I said, well, that sounds good, which is not a good one. I don't recommend that to anybody. <laughs> well, and, uh, yeah. Morning. Uh, Stay on the main roads, and we went into some areas. I thought, you know, this is it for me. I've made it my, my first big mistake traveling internationally. <laughs> but I got there uh, safely. Yeah. And the next day, um, my business counterpart, name is Vincent Leong, uh -huh. I was supposed to meet at the hotel that morning. Got Next morning, got up, no Vincent. I said, well, that's okay. You know, he's probably uh, going to be here later today. So I did some little touristy things yeah. in, in China. Uh -huh. And came back in no Vincent, and late that evening, no Vincent. Well, we're uh, supposed to fly the airlines tomorrow to the northeast part of China, up close to North Korea. Right. And I don't want to go by myself. Sure, sure. <laughs> and so, uh, as it turned out, he had been he came in a tour group, and someone got lost, and we got delayed. So uh -huh. uh, next morning, we get up and get on this uh, Russian airplane and. Oh, uh, that's the scariest uh, thing you've told me so far. <laughs> and uh, blew up in kind of a remote part of, of uh, China. Mm -hmm. And I was the only English-speaking person there, uh, yeah. well, except for... Uh, so we translated, and we unfortunately found out that this company had been closed down for probably 15 years. What? And they did have all the things they said, but everything was run down and decrepit. And what they really were looking for was a, a joint venture partner to invest in the company. Sure, sure. So from a business side of it, it wasn't very successful. Right. From an experience side, it was, it was pretty good. Yeah. The, uh, they, uh, on our uh, way out uh, the night before we were leaving, uh, they had a, a banquet for us. I mean, we were the guests of honor, which was you know, very nice of them, and yes. uh, we had this wonderful dinner, and then after dinner, out comes this waiter with a snake in his hand, ah. and a uh, big cup, and so snake gets slid open, blood gets dropped into the cup, and then uh, they start pouring these little cups of cognac, and everybody got uh, a little few drops of snake blood and cognac, 
and then the uh, the host said gambe, which basically means bottoms up. Right. And down goes the cognac and the snake's blood. Uh. And, uh, you know, you smile and your eyes water, and you think that was oh, that was wonderful. Thank you so much. And uh, <laughs> so that's just one of those other uh, things that being flexible, you just have to say, and you know, you feel honored. Absolutely. Uh, but uh, you know, you think I'm out. I've had the feeling more than once. I am really a, a long way from home, and uh, this is so different. But uh, what a great experience for, especially for me, being from small state, uh, and have these kind of experiences that I would never have had if I hadn't been involved in a company that uh, exported. You should yeah. bottle that. <laughs> yeah, well, that might be popular. Who knows? Yeah. They have they have some interesting uh, ideas about what that's supposed to do for you, and uh, I don't know that it, it's true or not, but. Uh, it's funny because uh, the Vincent that was with the Chinese guy, he says, you know, this will make you very virile, da 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 da. Yeah. And uh, I don't know. We had it. I had it. We had a. Uh, our first son was born uh, ten months later, so maybe it works. I don't know. Hey, you never. Yeah, you know, there's that's that homeopathic uh, the Chinese uh, ideas. Yeah. So, what are some of the flavors that they prefer in in China and Malaysia? Well, it's uh, surprising they actually that they have uh, uh, like rice wine kind of flavored, which is not a non-alcoholic mm-hmm. rice wine. Mm-hmm. Uh, they have chrysanthemum, uh, which is kind of interesting. It's really actually very good. Then they have star fruit and uh, rubiton, which is kind of a, a, it's a, a fruit that flow, you know, uh, grows locally. Uh, rambutan, excuse me. Uh, well, again, it's more just the local fruits because we kind of specialize in the fruit flavors. Yeah. The only thing that's local fruit, uh, and that, you know, I've seen both star fruit and uh, several of the fruits. You know, for a long time, you didn't see them anywhere, but now they're they're more common in some of the uh, some of the markets. You can get them, and they're, they're yeah. very delicious. There is a, a um, fruit that grows in Southeast Asia uh, called durian. Have you ever heard, ever heard of durian? How do you spell that? D u r i a n. Uh-uh. And it is called the king of fruits. And it's a big kind of pineapple-looking thing. Uh-huh. And it's got the atrocious odor, you can imagine. <laughs> you can't take it into hotels or on airplanes. <laughs> but it's very popular. We never did make a, uh, a drink out of that because it was just too obnoxious. Yeah. But it's uh, very popular there. But they, there again, you know, having to, to eat, it's not very, to me, I didn't enjoy it. And they laughed. Uh, they would cut one open and give me a slice and just really laugh at me because I just couldn't handle it, and they were all enjoying it. I bet. Oh, my gosh. So do you create these flavors, these uh, concentrated flavors? All of it is in Arkansas? Yes, it is. Yeah, we have a very good staff uh, chemist that uh, create flavors for us. Uh, some of the other flavors are popular in some of these areas, like I said, being part of British Crown colonies were like ginger beer is very popular. Was very popular during the yeah. and tonic water, uh-huh. uh, very popular uh, during that area. Yeah, but they do like some flavors that are common in the U.S. Uh, ginger ale, uh, for example. So that some flavors were easy for us to duplicate, mm-hmm. and some uh, a lot more creativity uh, from the technical staff. Uh, I bet doing those things. Now, have you? Uh... Do you uh, sell to Eastern Europe or, you know, uh, Kazakhstan, Ukraine, those areas? 
we have never really been very successful in Europe. Uh, we have found when we first were doing it, you know, we had to focus on the areas we thought we could be successful in. Of course. And when we did try to make uh, inquiries into Europe, we found that uh, bottled water was already very popular there, mm -hmm. and uh, beer and wine. It's hard to hard to compete with beer and wine sure. in some countries. Uh, sure. So we just never really did focus much on those areas. Mm -hmm. We had a business in Russia in the past. Mm -hmm. uh, but uh, that that just got very difficult customs wise. Yeah, and it just it was it's a difficult place to do business. I know. Uh, that, I know. That's the other other thing that uh, you know I kind of tell other ex you know, people interested in exporting. You have to be careful about where you want to try to export. Some countries are just so easy and they're easy to work with. The custom departments are not uh, extremely strict. I mean, they're they're good and they do their jobs, but some are easier than others. Right. Brazil is one of the hardest countries in the world to export into. Is that because of the uh, the tariffs or the tariffs? Import duties? We've had uh, import rules change while the shipment's in transit. Oh my goodness! And we've had uh, shipments that would sit in the customs for sixty days because some rules changed, and we have to like express uh, new labels down so they could relabel everything uh, because the rules changed. Uh, kind of an interesting story about our interest, our entry into Brazil. Mm -hmm. uh, I said earlier, we uh, the brand name had been sold off in Brazil many years ago, and, and you know, I turned to the story about he, he Mr. May had uh, lined up Brazil all set, and then it was sold off. And, right, right. Uh, I had a dinner with uh, his his widow uh, some years ago, about fifteen years ago. Mm -hmm. And she told me the story and the details. Is that if you could ever get back in Brazil, it would mean a lot to me. You know, that would be kind of redeem uh, Mr. May's efforts down there. Yeah. So I got a pledge. I would do everything I could to get Great Pet products back into Brazil. Mm -hmm. And made a lot of inquiries, hired a Brazilian company to represent us, and just came to a complete dead end. But that effort did lead us to the name of the company that owned it, owned the name down there, and kind of found out they're a very similar company to us. Uh, Family-owned, uh, the patriarch was uh, had met Mr. May, was familiar with him, and uh, it was owned, and the president was his his daughter, and so we tried and tried to really get something going, but couldn't. Yeah. But my wife, uh, my wife Lynn said, you know, let me send her a note, just you know, yeah. personal note to her, and see what would happen out of that. Huh. And as a result of that, we started this relationship. And they and we uh, we never sell them grape at because they make grape at. Yeah. But uh, we started selling them a cola concentrate uh, strictly because of just a personal uh, note uh, kind of got things rolling with them. Isn't that and, amazing? Uh, yeah, that's, it is. That's a great lesson. That's a great lesson to first of all to not give up, and second of all to 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 try to reach people as people. You know. True. Well, and part of you know one of the other thing I mentioned. Uh, my export advice is so much of international business is based on relationships. Correct. Uh, yes. Uh, in the U.S., you want to have good relationships. And you still, you know, you have to have a good product and a good price and good service. You have to have all the things. Right. But that's more dependent on relationships. And I think part of it is uh, a lot of these countries don't have a real strict rule of law. You can't just go to, you know, if you don't do what you say you're going to, you just don't go into a court and sue them. It's a lot more difficult. Exactly. Relationships and friendships mean everything they do and that's uh 
that's been a benefit to us. I think that's how we got into the Brazil thing. They, they realized that uh, this was a company that relationships were important to as well. So and that's how we got started. And, uh, you know, I know their kids' names, and I know where they went to college and when they're in the U.S. Yeah. Same thing, customers in Asia. Uh, they've been to visit us, and I've been to visit, and I've been in their homes. They've been in my house. Uh, so it's, it's more of a, uh, a social relationship uh, than it is the business relationship. Uh, that's, that's just really critical, and it sometimes takes longer to establish those. Right. Just watch price. When can we? When, when can we order it? Sometimes it's sometimes very frustrating that it takes as long as it does. But once you do it, uh, you've got a long-term customer. Exactly. You know, I'm I'm glad you mentioned that. I I find that to be one of the most important lessons is patience. Uh, I mean, I think we our culture here is often you know get it done quickly and you know just get it done, but. Uh, sometimes the patience really pays off. Uh, so I'm glad you brought that up. I, I agree with that uh, thinking. That, that's absolutely true. It's, at least my experience internationally is that mm-hmm. uh, it, there's sometimes a lot of socializing. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, you, uh, I have sang karaoke in more places than I <laughs> Oh, good, because we were going to ask you to uh, end the pot. I'm just kidding. <laughs> well, it would, that would be a bad idea because I, I don't sing very well. But uh, <laughs> it's funny because I've joked that I've sang a John Denver song, Country Roads, Take Me Home, Country Roads. I love like that three song. Different oh, that's great. That's it's great. easy to sing, and it's always on the list. So when we, when I'm going to karaoke, he's like, I'll sing Country Roads with you, and everybody sings along. That's great. That's great. And, and now you know the lyrics probably. So that's, that's great. Oh, that's great. I love that. So, well, um, no. So um, are there any other, you know, unique trade challenges for your business that might be interesting to people? I mean, you've covered quite a few, but, you know. Well, I think, you know, just one that, as you mentioned, is, you know, sometimes it's patience. Yeah. Uh, just be respectful of customs. Make yourself aware of what customs exist in different countries. Right. Uh, there's very good sources on the internet about customs in different countries. Uh, you know, in Asia, it's, it's very big uh, about keeping face. Uh, take small, a small token gift uh, when you travel. Uh, it doesn't have to be very, you know, shouldn't be very valuable, uh, but take yes. a small gift, preferably something local, identifiable with your area. Uh, I like to take little crystals, which is mined in Hot Springs area. Oh, that's uh, a great idea. Like of your of your company or your country, uh, so the gift gift things, uh, and as you know, use the resources of companies like yours. Uh, you know, the U.S. has the U.S. Uh, commercial services. Right. Really, really helpful. Those people really they know their stuff. Exactly. They can align you with. Uh, Contacts in, in different countries. Uh, exactly. Several times before I've traveled somewhere, I've, I've called them and they've sent me a, a company or a country profile uh, that tells me some of the things to be aware of and certain things to be uh, careful of. But also, uh, they've got uh, services that can connect you directly with the people you want to talk to. Exactly. They can provide translators and they can provide people to transport you. They have some charges for that, obviously, but just some great resources. 
uh, within the U.S. commercial services and with your, uh, I guess, your, your state's economic development right. groups. It's really helpful. I've used those so many times. I know. Uh, Sometimes they'll have a... Some states will, will pay for a tra- a booth at a trade show, and cost is very low to participate. I mean, those kind of things are just great resources. You, you brought up something that we haven't really talked about on this podcast before, and I wonder if you could explain what you think it means to save face or to lose face, because it's a really important concept uh, in doing business overseas, particularly in certain... It really is. Uh- in Asia, particularly saving face, uh, more of the idea that sometimes in negotiations in Asia, uh, you don't get a, you don't get really a yes or no. Mm-hmm. Even when they say yes, they don't mean mm-hmm. yes, but they don't want to embarrass you by saying no to your face. Right. And they have the same thing. Uh, it's just that it's just very important that everybody, it's kind of a win-win. Mm-hmm. They want everybody to win, even though sometimes somebody loses. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it's, uh, it's just, uh, you know, some of the things that I, I try, like in Thailand, the worst, one of the worst things you can do is to shout, uh, because it just mm-hmm. kind of embarrasses, just don't want to embarrass uh, your host. Yes. Uh, you, uh, when you get a compliment, you, you just be very humble about it. Yes. Uh, don't make a big deal about it. Right. Uh, you know, they, uh, for example, if you're negotiating a price, uh, they'll avoid a loss, a loss of face. Yeah. By, it's just, it's just, it's just kind of, saving face is probably the most, in culture, most important cultural difference. Yes. Uh, or most important thing to them. Uh, and it's, it's kind of frustrating. If you don't understand it, uh, it's kind of uh, hard. To, it's even kind of hard to explain because it's so important. It is. It is. Uh, uh, but it's, I guess, r- respecting throughout that so that they, so they don't feel bad. You don't want them to feel bad. They don't want to feel bad. So before you go to a country, read up on the culture. Try to be knowledgeable as much as you can about, you know, how how they act with other people and with business people. It's very, you know, one of the things that when you go to dinner, which you ultimately will, yeah, uh, kind of offer to pay, but knowing that you're not, you know, don't make a big deal about it. Right. Don't offer to help. Tip, just uh, say, oh, let me get that. And then that's it. You know, yeah. Yeah. Uh, be somewhat polite, but uh, let them, uh, let them always pay. Uh, yeah. Be very complimentary. Uh, and this, this was, this was advice from someone that gave me one time to travel out there and said, Invariably, you're going to, after dinner, you're going to go out for some, some drinks. Right. And don't make a big deal out of trying to out-drink everybody. So first of all, you probably can't. Right. And secondly, it's, it's not very appropriate. So it's uh, even though, like I said, not, not always with the snake blood, but there seems to always be uh, some uh, cognac or, or burgundy or some of the dessert wines out after right. dinner. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, exactly. Um, I guess... Uh, the last thing I would say is I've been, and I just want to give this compliment because I know you're a member of the uh, expert council, district expert council in Arkansas. I've been very impressed with the resources and support Arkansans seem to have from, you know, government agencies there in Arkansas. You seem to have a very supportive community of exporters. And is that, is my impression correct? 
It is certainly correct. As I, as I mentioned, I've used them a number of times, and they've just always been so willing to help and uh, provided me with exactly the information. Uh, I mean, so that, you know, with the initial call may be, I don't know, but I will find out, and they always do. Uh, not only the government agencies, but the, dis the export, um, that group as, as well. Yeah. Uh, the, the leadership of that group is just outstanding. Um, just very, very helpful to exporters, uh, whether existing exporters or people who who are thinking about it. Then that's the one thing I'd, I, you know, I'd want to say. If you're thinking about it and you think you have a product that you can sell, don't be intimidated by what it seems to be very difficult. There's a lot of resources. It's uh, it it can be done. It's different. Uh, do your homework. Mm -hmm. uh, talk to the people. Talk to people who are currently exporters. Talk to the government resources or your export deck, if you, and, and you do have one in Tennessee. Every state has one. Yes. Uh, there are people there to help you, and they will guide you through, get a good freight forwarder, uh, and uh, your life will be you know, easier than you think. And, and getting exactly. You, there again, you've got to have a good product and good service and good price, all those things that you'd have to have in the U.S. Right. But, uh, see, it can be done. This, this country exports a lot of uh, products and services, and so uh, if uh, if a company like ours can do it, then I think uh, any other company can do it, too. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, your stories have been so fascinating, Ed. It's so so kind of you to take time to, to be on the podcast. And I want to say to our listeners, we'd love to get a conversation going about this episode and or even more general discussions about exporting. Um, so, you know, please reach out to me on exportstoriespodcast.com, our website. You can go to the contact page. Uh, or post comments on the episode page, and I'm happy to post your comments and questions. And we are also on Twitter. So, uh, you know, we really are trying to create a community of exporters here, and I hope uh, people will reach out and chat with us. Uh, Ed, thank you so much for being a guest today. It's been really enjoyable. Well, thank you for the invitation, and thank you in, in general for having your podcast. I think it can be very helpful uh, to give some people exposure to what what exporting is all about. Well, good. Well, good. Well, we're we're going to continue to reach out to people, and and we've got listeners from all over the world now. So it's 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 really uh, it's really enjoyable. So thank you very much, and thanks to everyone for listening. Thanks, Ed. Nice, really nice speaking with you. Thank you very much. Thank you so much for listening to Export Stories. Perhaps you have a good export story that you would like to share with us or a comment about today's podcast. You can send your ideas and comments to our website at exportstoriespodcast.com or to Betsy Olam on LinkedIn. Subscribe to our newsletter at exportstoriespodcast.com so we can alert you of upcoming episodes and share resources with you. We're building a community of export storytellers, so please share this podcast with your friends who have interest in exporting. 